It's time we honor the biggest lie ever told, that if we made money as a business owner or hit a certain dollar amount, our problems would suddenly go away, right? My name is Cheryl Dorsey. I'm a data journalist, a tech founder, and a longtime entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and have done what feels like all the things. Yet I still wonder on a daily basis, am I doing this right? As entrepreneurs, we provide more time than we have, risk more money than most, and sell or are sold to more than we would like to admit. It's my mission through this show to give you a space to honor the powerful builder and CEO in you, even when sometimes it feels like no one should have left you in charge. Incredible work doesn't come without painful lessons. Welcome to I think I'm doing this right. Hey everyone, it is your girl Sherelle Dorsey and you are tuned into I think I'm doing this right. And I want to talk to you all about my entrepreneurial journey. I do not have a formula to give anyone. And let me tell you why. My journey is plagued by tap dance aspirations, fashion, tech, all these different pathways, a pandemic, a recession, a layoff, a sleeping on a stranger's sofa on the beach in Santa Monica. And wherever you are in your journey, I'm sure that you are trying to figure it out, especially in this climate, this economic climate, all of the uncertainty. The last few years have really been marked by a month to month situationship. We have been in this entanglement for far too long. And yet there's still so much in your journey that matters and will make sense the more that you get comfortable being 100% uncomfortable. Let's dive in. So one of the first things that really sparked my interest in entrepreneurship, or at least gave me the idea that I could create something out of my brain and charge people for it, was honestly going to the hair salon with my mom. And that was our ritual. It was every two weeks. That was back in the day when she stopped giving me the just for me perms and in the kitchen or with the hot comb. And we would go to Miss Evelina's and she had a salon in this like house. And we would sit there for hours because you know the, the hair salon is always ours. And it was just me and my mom, together every two weeks, getting our perm and our touch up. And I remember watching Miss Evelina and her clients and eventually um, going to Miss Monica's to get our nails done. And just watching the cash exchanges, the beauty of the women and the men that would come into the salons and just watching the brochures that were made, the printing sometimes. Auntie Monica would let me go with her to go pick up supplies for the nail salon. And I just thought it was so fascinating that every day she woke up, she got dressed, she went to her business, she opened the store, she swept, she prepared the room and the space for her customers and for her clients, and she went to work. And she got to determine exactly her salary. And I thought that was so fascinating. And I will say that like watching these women 
especially in these spaces of beauty and of service, was really the initial spark of, I could, I could do something like this. And when I was younger, I want to say I hadn't even been a teenager just yet, but Black Enterprise Magazine had a section called Teenpreneur. And there were all of these teens and young people who were creating companies, be it like a bow tie design business or some kind of a hair company or even website design services. And I just thought to myself, like, I'm young. I could do that, too. And when my grandfather bought our first computer in the house, the first thing I did was I had my mom go and get me those Avery business card labels from the, it was like either Office Depot or Office Max or something like that. And I went into Microsoft Publisher and I designed my own business cards. Now, I did not know what my business was, but I knew that I saw other people passing out their business cards when I would be with my mom at various events or in the coffee shop. And I decided I too needed some business cards. And I had my phone number on there. I think I had just gotten an email address and Brandy was my favorite singer. So I think it was like, I think my email address was like relish, because my family calls me relish. It was like relish, brandy, what have you, at AOL.com or something like that. And so <laughs> this is a wild, this is like wild. I can't believe my mother like let me spend her money to build my pretend business. And I really, really was pumped about potentially being featured in Black Enterprise Magazine as a teenpreneur with my business and my Avery business cards. And I just knew that I could create something. And one opportunity I really, I, that really sort of helped me on my way was eventually going from learning and taking tap classes into actually teaching tap classes. And so I was about 12 years old when my instructor had foot surgery and she couldn't teach. And she had already been really investing in me to help um, grow my skills and advance within, within dance. So she asked me to come and assist her with some of the younger kids' classes for a couple of weeks and she would pay me. So I'm like 12 years old, making 25 bucks an hour, teaching dance on a Saturday and Eventually, I pitched her. I didn't call it a pitch at the time, but I asked her, listen, I've been working with these young kids for the last few weeks. I started choreographing a routine. Can I continue to work with them? Her foot had healed everything. And she's like, absolutely. And so from middle school until the day that I graduated from high school, I was teaching, I was teaching maybe three to four classes a week. And so, and then eventually there were young girls who were doing competitions. So I would teach for competitions and Char would let me have the studio during the week for free. And I would charge a premium to parents. So that was like my first taste of entrepreneurship. And, you know, I'd have to pay rent. So that was just money I was pocketing like all the time. So now I finally had a reason to have my business cards. Um, but that truly was my foray into taking some skills that I had acquired and learned and using that to create a pathway to money for myself. And eventually, as I started to learn how to code and to program in high school, worked at Microsoft, what have you, and learned how to create websites, I started creating some websites for different nonprofits in Seattle. So that was like another way. Like, honestly, I would come home, my mom was like, you always have money. Like, 
always have money. She was like, and you can go buy your own school clothes now. <laughs> so, and so it all like started to come, uh, started to come together for me in my mind. And eventually Auntie Monica helped let me help her in the salon. Like I would get up at like five, 6 a.m., work with her at the salon, go to class, and then on the weekends, teach tap. Like I was hustling forever, like forever, had a job since I was 12 <laughs> in some capacity or was creating some kind of revenue um, for myself in some kind of capacity. So those were like the early days for me of entrepreneurship. My mom used to tell me in high school how she kind of hate, hated that she raised me with so much confidence because I didn't listen to anybody. And I always thought that was the most hilarious thing because she definitely instilled in me this sense of like, be all you can be, you know, you can do what have you. Um, but then at the same time, like, don't embarrass me in these streets, right? <laughs> and also like, make sure you, you know, you go to class, get your good grades, go to college and, you know, create a life for yourself, a very kind of safe path, right? A path that was proven in my family in going from, you know, poverty into the black middle class and having so many more options that their parents can, couldn't even have imagined. I mean, my grandfather hopped on a Greyhound bus, you know, from Detroit, Michigan in the 50s and, you know, started his life, you know, living at the YMCA for $10 a day, making $2.38 an hour as an aircraft technician at Boeing. And, you know, that, you know, ushering in an opportunity for him to create and provide a life for his family. And I always kind of carried those, those ideas with me of there is a tried and true way to enter into the world. And if you're like most, you know, kids of the 90s, it was always that college was going to be the only path. So I went. I went because I was, I was told that I was supposed to go. And also because I didn't know what else to do. I had all of this, like, energy and all of this talent and all of these kind of left brain and right brain skill sets. And yet I had not seen someone that embodied the idea of both being technically savvy as well as creative. And at one point I thought, okay, how can I like tap dance and be a computer scientist and travel the world and learn like three languages and write poetry? And always the oddball black sheep in the family of like, Sherelle's always doing the most and we have no idea what kind of box to put her in. And so when I decided to go to college, I kind of deviated from the path that my family thought maybe I would go into computer science because I had spent four years, you know, learning how to code, learning um, computer networking and working at Microsoft and like building this reputation of like being like the resident tech support for my family and deciding to actually go to the Fashion Institute of Technology for school. And my thinking behind that, and the only reason why I stumbled upon FIT was because I had gone to a master tap class in Chelsea. If you know anything about New York City, Stepping Out Studios is on like 27th or 28th in like 8th Avenue or maybe it's 6th Avenue. And I was rehearsing like every day for like a week during the summer. And during my breaks, I will walk over and sit at the campus at FIT and I would walk into the museum, the fashion museum. And I found it to be absolutely exhilarating to walk into that museum and to see how the history of fashion and design had shaped the world. From looking at the first designer to put 
women in denim on the runway or just pants um, and the evolution of class and race in society and how that story is told through fashion. The history of it, watching students carrying racks and building their companies at the age of 20 or 21, 22, and realizing here are these people building companies, designing their own brands, designing their own packaging. You know, at the time, like e-commerce was exploding. So they're creating, designing, and before this idea of like traditional uh, direct-to-consumer was a thing, they were literally in their early 20s, like doing this all themselves. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of something like that, taking all of this kind of creative energy that had defined my life through the, the prior years and packaging that up into a, a creative sort of business environment. So I decided to go to FIT and no one could understand why I was going to fashion school and no one could also understand why I was leaving Seattle to go to fashion school. <laughs> Instead of taking that good old almost full, full ride scholarship to Seattle University. And I did not have language for it at the time, but I knew that Seattle wasn't gonna take me to where I needed to be. I knew that the energy of New York, the hustle, the bustle, the creativity, the challenge, the discomfort of being in an environment that I was not 100% familiar with was going to push me and challenge me. And what I loved about that experience, I ended up studying international trade and marketing. And then I also minored in like Latin American fiction studies because I just wanted to read poetry and speak and speak Spanish and then like travel the world and be somewhere in South America and like read books and sit at cafes, <laughs> like <laughs> on top of the business environment. It was a very non-linear option, but it taught me the ability to think laterally about how fashion and design influence the world, how it influences our purchasing decisions, our behaviors, our engagement interaction, that when we see good design and we, and we interact with it, even in a public setting, it completely sets the tone for how we, how we think about value, how we think about placemaking and all of these things. And again, I did not even have that language, you know, back in the day, but I was intrigued by it. I remember sitting in the auditorium one day on the campus at FIT and Calvin Klein came to speak. We used to have a lot of these incredible designers come to campus and just like casually talk about their journey. Calvin Klein had gone to FIT and um, a bunch of other designers and Giorgio Armani would come and visit, Betsy Johnson. And I remember I probably was like 20, 21 at the time. And I asked him, how did you know at 22 you were gonna be a good boss? And he said, I didn't know. I don't even think I was a good boss. He said, I just, I just wanted to create something and so I did. And I thought it was so bold and so brave that even without any kind of experience, that fearlessness, that fearlessness of saying, I'm going to try it and give it a shot. And lo and behold, 20, 30, 40 years later, it built a multi-billion dollar brand that started on this campus that enabled and unlocked this idea that I could be a great business person and I can be a great artist at the same time. And so those worlds really collided for me in that experience. 
Hey folks, thanks for tuning into the podcast. I hope you're getting all the gems and all the tools from the lessons here. I just wanted to make sure I took the time to tell you about my new book, Upper Hand, The Future of Work for the Rest of Us. You can get it wherever books are sold. In it, I dive into the roadmaps of helping you, your loved ones, students, mentees, communities really understand and define strategies for understanding the language of innovation, entrepreneurship, and what's ahead. It's built with pages of exercises, lists of free or low-cost education tools and certifications, and a full 10-page list of what jobs will define the future, the salaries of those jobs, and prerequisites. If you've ever felt overwhelmed about what you need to get started in the tech industry or simply need a bit of guidance on how to create opportunities for yourself, pick up Upper Hand today. I want to think about how I got from being in this fashion environment, sort of thinking that I needed to continue. Again, this this self-doubt creeps in because when you don't have access to the resources, you are always trying to figure out how do I do what it is that I want to do, but also like, how do I feed myself every day? And that's always sort of an interesting tension because I'm like, okay, I was like working at like Starbucks, doing an internship at at Parish, which was started by the guys who had created a Nietzsche in Mecca. And Tony Shulman had gone to high school with my aunt. So I got like, I was, I was like a shoe in for like that fashion internship. And then also I was like doing PR on the side for different companies and continuing to hustle. And I was trying to figure out like, what is gonna be that like dorm room startup thing that's going to get me to the next level, right? Like Facebook at the time was just for college students and New York City was tough. It was four or five roommates and (laughs) commuting and like trying to figure out how to like eat relatively healthy and cheap at the same time. And when I think about that journey, there were a couple of pivotal moments that had kind of caused me to almost doubt whether or not my dreams were even possible. The first being that I graduated in the heart of a recession. And I'd actually landed my first job. Like I graduated on a Friday and I started work on a Monday. And my graduation speaker actually ended up being my boss. And I had this blog that she was reading and she's like, do you want to come work here? And I was like, yes, because I don't have any money and all of my friends are losing their jobs. So please hire me. And it came together. And then six months later, the world just completely changed and layoffs like mass layoffs. And I found myself back in Seattle on my mother's sofa teaching at, you know, the dance school I taught at when I was a teenager, just trying to like keep it together. And I remember the levels of doubt of like, just follow the path, Sherelle. Like, go get the job. Just, you know, get your apartment, get, get your, your full-time job. Like, follow that formula because clearly all this other stuff you're trying to do doesn't make any sense. And it was such an incredible tension and such an, a very, very challenging time. But like, I, like, I, like I've said, like I always tell myself, the worst that can happen is that you go home. So I was home, I was home for a full year trying to figure it out, trying to apply for jobs. And sometimes, sometimes when you are not on the right path, nothing will work out. There was no reason why I shouldn't have landed some of these really amazing jobs while I was home in Seattle. And even my mother looked at me one day and she said, you do not belong here. You need to go back to New York. And before doing that, I actually, 
was on Craigslist. This was like back in the day when Craigslist was a little less scary, or maybe it's always been scary, but I just wasn't like, you know, that afraid of it. But I found a lady who was looking to, was looking for someone to house sit for her and to care for her dog while she went to New York. And she had a condo on the beach in Santa Monica. And so I said, you know what? I'm not doing anything significant here in Seattle. I need to figure out my life. I'm in a quarter life crisis at this point. So I asked my mother for some airline mileage points and I went and I lived on the beach for three months in Santa Monica for free. And I took care of this lady's dog and I went to the beach every day and I was just trying to write plans about like, what is my next move? Where am I trying to go? Do I go back to school? Cause most people were kind of hiding in school during the recession and you know, I was like, well, I can maybe I can go get like a policy degree and like try to change the world on that end. But in my heart of hearts, I still knew that there was something bigger and greater and I was not fully maximizing or realizing my potential. I just had to figure out what the next best idea was going to be. And I knew that tech was still such a core part of who it is that I was. I just had not yet figured out how do I get back into this space and really demonstrate my prowess in this area so that I can go be a part of these like world changing companies that are fundamentally shifting society. So, you know, three months after the beach, it was like, all right, you got to get a job. You got to build up your savings again. You got to keep moving forward while you're trying to figure out this next move. Um, and eventually I was able to land at like companies like Uber and Google Fiber and all the while still trying to figure out what's my next thing. And what's interesting in, in this journey is sometimes you have to have that pause. You have to have that stillness so you can think through your ideas. You can let them mature. You can let yourself mature. And you can also forgive yourself for some of those failures and for some of the assumptions that you had wrong. But you still get to be relentless and saying, okay, let me secure the, my, my baseline desires, right? My baseline needs are gotta feed myself, I've gotta, I've gotta have shelter of some sort, and I gotta just keep building up my community. So I spent a few, the first part of my 20s doing that. And as I mentioned, there are there are those pivotal moments. There was the recession. There was having to go back and stay on my mother's sofa. There was being on a beach in a stranger's house taking care of their dog and like having no money and still like going to parties and having a good time. And then <laughs> and then there was my best friend dying. And that for me completely shifted how I thought about my time. And when I look back on it, that year I spent in Seattle was so pivotal because we spent so many times, so much time together, just like hiking, throwing parties, enjoying like just being together. And I realized I was supposed to be home at that time. I was supposed to be there creating these incredible memories with her because that following year, she was no longer with us. And she never got to turn 30. And... I, it was really hard to be young, to lose someone that like you grew up with. It was really, really hard to think about the next day and the next day not being promised. And amid grieving, amid grieving her loss, I told myself, and I tell myself this every day, like I am still here, I still get to do something, her death is not in vain because I'm gonna to try to accomplish everything that I told her that I was going to accomplish. So 
I felt like a lot of my you know, early to mid 20s was really about recovering from the recession. And I know a lot of folks who, you know, were around the same age, we feel like we lost some years, um, you know, through that process. And once I kind of felt a little bit more stable and I had found myself in these like major startups, really learning at an accelerating pace, you know, I always say like my early startup experiences and like these like ruthless companies like those were my MBA programs like if I thought I was dope before it was like it shapes you it ruins you it breaks your confidence and it rebuilds it back up and you learn how to hustle like honestly like you learn how to hustle like a white dude seriously and that's a whole different kind of like a hustle in in in, in thought process in in some instances and as I completely had, sh had to shift the way that I was thinking, the way that I was building things and learning from a an amalgamation of folks from all kinds of different backgrounds and experiences, it really instilled in me a, a confidence that I always thought that I had, but realizing like, oh, there, there are levels to this in so many different ways. And it let me know, it let me, it let me be so ruthless and so confident in going from the ground up that as I started to launch new businesses, I had a completely different framework for asking for what it is that I wanted. In, I wanna say maybe it was 2017 or maybe 2018, uh, with some friends, we launched a, a, a it was essentially a meetup at first. It was called Black Tech Charlotte. I was living in Charlotte at the time. So this for me was probably city number like five or six because I had been floating around the country um, in different environments. And Black Tech Charlotte was this idea of let's centralize, you know, tech talent and entrepreneurship and, and find community. Again, like building community was so central to me feeling rooted in a city and to, you know, reaching the goal of, listen, I'm going to launch something. I have no idea what it's going to be just yet, but I want to do this in community with other people that are also trying to build something from the ground up. Black Tech Charlotte accidentally became its own business. It took off. Some friends and I decided to get together and launch Black Tech Charlotte as a meetup. And in the first day, or the first time we ever had this, over 150 people had showed up to our doors. It was insane, because I thought it was gonna be like 12 people, right? It was like maybe some of our friends that felt sorry for us and you know, just took pity on us and then like, my best friend's mom, maybe she would have shown up, but there were literally like 150 people that showed up to the door and they were like, listen, we are investors, we're builders, we've been sitting at home, building these things from the ground up, traveling the country, trying to raise money, and we have never had an experience like this. I had a friend that I met, at, I met in an Uber when Uber used to have Uber pool. He was a DJ on the side and I was like, come DJ. And we went to the Harris Teeter and got two for $12 wine so people could have something to drink and just let it take off and to run. And I remember having been trained in like this tech environment that was so ruthless, really applying that to not being afraid to go in the door and say, yep, I need a meeting with such and such. And I wanna ask for X, Y, and Z, or this is what we need in order to get started or walking into businesses with no relationships and saying, here's what I'm doing, here's what I'm building. You definitely wanna be a part of this because it's gonna take over the city, so are you game? And complete strangers just letting me like operate and do events outside of their places of business, shoot videos, 
open up and have complete conversations with like NFL players and athletes and bringing them into to conversations. Again, a newcomer, a transplant to a city I had never ever stepped foot inside of until the day I decided to move there with $300 in my pocket. And it completely took off. So that was kind of a, a foray into um, not just community building, but putting my sort of newfound confidence, you know, after waiting through a recession, after waiting through the death of one of my closest friends, after sort of wading through this, this idea that, well, maybe, maybe I don't have what it takes to create a startup. Maybe I just do need to work and help build somebody else's startup. And then saying, you know what, I'm still gonna keep trying. And so Black Tech Charlotte was the, was the sort of um, next tier of that, of that evolution, that sense of reinvention. And then at the same time, I thought to myself, I've gotten to live in these incredible cities from Seattle to New York to um, Bridgeport, Connecticut to Charlotte, Miami, Atlanta. I've got to live in these incredible environments. And every time I root myself in a, in, in a place, I'm meeting these incredible innovators. But no one's telling their stories from a standpoint of how critical their business is to the future of business, technology, and work. So I started to tell those stories. I started to craft a newsletter that accidentally then became its own startup. And being okay with experimentation, a failure of getting it wrong, I had finally sort of seasoned myself into that. And I decided, if it, even if it goes bust, at least I'm, go at least I'm trying. Black Tech Charlotte really morphed into its own life force. It really bred life into the city. And the level of respect that we received was just unprecedented. The national coverage we received was unprecedented. I remember six months in, like creating a fund for entrepreneurs of color in the city, like convincing a community development financial institution, also known as the CDFI, to put aside $100,000 just for black entrepreneurs in the city. And again, you know, just asking, just asking people and telling them like, you need to do this. And they're like, okay, you're right. And that continuously morphing into what else can we do? And that's really what like, what like the name of the game was with my co-founders. It was, what else can we do? What else can we do? What else can we do? We even got um, an offer to open up a space in a new development called Camp North End. So we opened up a physical space. I DM'd uh, one of my girlfriends, Quint who's now is one of my girlfriends, uh, Quintel, Quintel, Kin, yeah. I even DM'd uh, one of my girls, who is now one of my girls, uh, Quintel Gwyn, who was a designer that I was stalking on Instagram. And I was like, hey, I need to outfit and design a space in like a week. Can you help me? And she was like, okay. And we put a space together in three days, the Black Tech Charlotte office for innovation in the city. And I remember sending an email to our email list of about 800 black techies and entrepreneurs and saying, hey, we're opening up a space. Can someone come and help? I feed you and I'll, I'll pay you in pizza. And folks coming and like literally sticking together furniture and helping to paint walls and, you know, writing on our bathroom walls, like wishing us luck. And I remember the first day that we opened, um, the mayor, Mayor Vial Lyles came out and like, gave her blessing, you know, over the Black Tech Charlotte space. And people used to take buses from one end of the city to the next 
to come to physically be in our space as we were trying to create this environment for, um, you know, for black entrepreneurs to gather and to be seen and to be visible. One of my favorite stories is walking into the city offices and walking into a meeting with some folks who were working to support us and, you know, passing by some cubicles and this man coming out to me and my co-founders and saying, you know what, y'all are doing such a great job. I was telling my church about y'all and we've been praying for you ladies. And I mean, only in the South, like folks are really just having entire prayer sessions for you to be successful. And it was so encouraging. And I just think about how crazy that time was. I mean, we, we put together high school tech internship training programs. I was able to just tap on people in the community and say, hey, I need your help here and then plugging in. And eventually Black Tech Charlotte got to be so big and so massive, I could no longer contain it. I could no longer run the day to day. I mean, managing both the space and going to meetings and raising capital and all of those things just began to be a bit of a distraction for the thing that I knew. I knew in my heart of hearts, I'm supposed to be doing something else. Like this is great, but there's something on a, a national and a global scale I'm supposed to be doing. And part of that had started to emanate within my reporting and creating the plug and, and crafting newsletter after newsletter and starting to be starting to get hit up by you know top tier CEOs and um, and and, uh, and and clients and people who were asking for advertising and I thought to myself okay I cannot feed or, or you know I can't have two masters <laughs> I cannot have two masters so when I decided that you know Black Tech Charlotte could no longer sustain and it had to be in in other hands I approached my co my co-founders and I said listen y'all because everyone was starting to kind of deviate and create their own thing it was like look we want to give this back to the community we want to give this 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 entity that we've created, this environment that we've created, this kind of hope that we've created. I mean, we even created a, a black innovation library. Like we got over 150 people from around the country um, to, to donate books, books on black entrepreneurship, books on innovation, books on black scientists. We would host reading reading um, days with with kids to learn about like rocket science and math and all of these incredible things that we love to do, but had fundamentally now become way too core to our work, our everyday work. And collectively, we decided we've got to find a buyer for this. We got to find a buyer, and um, it took us a few months to find the right person. But we were able to sell the company in uh, in in January of 2021 to um, a local startup entity called City Startup Labs that takes that has taken it on today. And what was great about that was realizing you can have all the momentum, you can build something incredible and great, and you can still be working on the wrong thing. And I had to realize it's time for me to retire working on the wrong thing so that I can focus on the main thing and making the main thing the main thing. And the main thing at the time was the plug. And I had to devote 100% of my attention to building it out. It was one of those moments of like, this is do or die. You're either gonna make this thing work or you are going to find something else to do and you're gonna forget all about this vision you had for creating something akin to like the Black Bloomberg. And once Black Tech Charlotte, once, once we knew that Black Tech Charlotte would have a safe home to continue to grow and to serve, Working solely on the plug gave me a sense of freedom to really imagine and, and question my general assumptions about my capabilities to grow something from the ground up and to keep the momentum 
day after day, month after month, and staying focused. Hey folks, my new podcast is not the only place to get tips and gems and updates from me. You can also go to my website at shereldorsey.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter, where I share thoughtful essays on productivity, innovation, business, as well as new projects I'm working on. I'd love to have you share this podcast and give me a shout on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or wherever you're being social these days. And if you're enjoying the content thus far, don't forget to leave your girl a review. Okay, now back to the show. You know, I started the plug while I was still working full time and it truly was just a labor of love. And I took a domain name and a free MailChimp account and decided I just want to talk about all these incredible founders that I'm meeting and I am getting the chance to interview and getting the chance to really learn from. And I did not know, nor did I intend for the plug to be much more than a newsletter for me to sort of riff on black innovation at large. I had, you know, been hustling with, you know, publishing stories for Black Enterprise and The Root and Fast Company and all these other entities really trying to push um, some of these publications to even give me a column to, to cover black innovation and not just consumerism around technology or just not kind of like the magical, you know, founder story, but more of how do we start to deep dive into the moment that's taking place and taking shape as black and brown founders are starting to get access to capital and to opportunities um, in, in a much more rapid pace than maybe ever before. And so the plug for me, it wasn't, I think the, the first idea was very small. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we have to allow ourselves room to grow into our ideas, to kind of second guess ourselves, to push past our fears and limitations of thinking bigger. Sometimes, I don't know about y'all, but like sometimes, you know, I have to push myself to think bigger and to decide that I can have more. So let me go ahead and want more. I thought just having a, a newsletter would have been really dope. And then at some point I got a chance to read Bloomberg by Bloomberg and essentially the autobiography of Bloomberg's story. And I loved the way in which he had built up this, this sort of um, the, the terminal in and of itself, this business terminal to create data and use data to create the storytelling. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty incredible. Um, I'm using data on a daily basis, you know, working full time for a major startup. How can I apply this to a space and innovation that has been largely unrecognized, especially when we think about innovation from folks who typically don't get to be named thought leaders? You know, I'm from Seattle. So the names that were part of our general lexicon were the Bill Gates, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jeff Bezos. But those people didn't come from Rainier Beach or Skyway like I did. They didn't go to Franklin High School, an amazing public school, go Quakers. Um, they didn't come from those environments. So I could not always relate to that brand of innovation, but I could relate to my grandfather building my, my robotic arm when I was in seventh grade for the science fair project. And I could relate to Auntie Monica and Miss Evelyn in their hair salon and them using that as an incubator for young girls to do apprenticeships and paying them and helping them, you know, pay for their their college textbooks or school clothes. And so when I thought about the opportunity that the plug could provide, I had to stretch myself 
beyond what I initially thought it could be. And again, starting with a $10 domain name, asking a bunch of questions, finagling my way into press passes at major conferences and sharing Airbnbs with folks and paying for my own flights to go and get the story and to be a part of the communities that I was, I was building, I was investigating, I was interviewing. All of those things, like helping to both build myself as I was starting to build the plug. And the dream had to get so much bigger. And at one point I thought to myself, I need to go and get some kind of certification and data so that I can figure out how to build this thing right. And I stumbled on a program and decided to go back to school. And I found um, a, a data and journalism program at Columbia University. And now the part of my story I haven't told people is that in high school, when I was applying to colleges, I had applied to Barnard and I did not get in. And I cried for three days. I cried for three whole days. I did not get into this like fancy schmancy school. So I had all these reservations about applying to Columbia Journalism School and trying to concentrate in data. Um, I was nervous to the point where I almost did not even hit the send button on my application because I had so much fear around being rejected again. And I remember like friends in the group chat having to tell me like, can you look at the body of work that you've produced? Can you just please stop tripping and go ahead and hit send? And I am so grateful again for community because I would have completely punked out and missed my shot and my opportunity. Everything I did in grad school was towards the building up of the plug. It was me learning while growing my business, literally going from class to meetings, to fundraising calls, to hiring contractors, to partnerships with folks like um, Vice, doing interviews, doing photo shoots. Like I maximized that 10 month accelerated master's degree program. I did not sleep. There was no sleep involved. There was never any sleep. But everything in that journey allowed me to build up the plug and to think bigger about the, the utility of black innovation data in the context of storytelling and doing something in a space and an environment where the journalism industry had like been losing jobs. All of these like big media companies had begin cutting their valuations or selling for pennies on the dollar. And here I was like, yeah, I'm gonna still build a media company. And I don't know how this is gonna work, but I'm gonna try to approach this from a different lens and say that, hey, I don't wanna look at black innovation news as entertainment. I want it to be what will tell the story of what the future is going to be, what the future of technology, the future of society, the future of business will be. And keeping that thesis and keeping that vision has helped me to bring the plug full circle and back to the origins of how we tell stories matter how we shape our narratives matter. Even when I think about my beginnings and I think about the superpowers I was able to cultivate with having no knowledge of how to do any of this and then applying it into the building of the plug. And so today, having some venture-backed, having a venture-backed entity, um, having been first revenue-focused has helped me to learn the pitfalls of building something from the ground up and hiring team members. Right now, I have about five uh, full-time employees and we work with you know, over 20 contractors around the, around the globe. And when I look at where we're heading next, it is beyond just even the storytelling. It is how do we establish and set a foundation for intelligence 
business intelligence that looks at more than just one sort of archetype of a founder or of a community or of this idea of wealth enabling you know, the best and the brightest versus those who by necessity have to build differently are the most interesting and fascinating kind of builders that have ever existed. And now how do we take and harness that data and use it to our advantage? So much of this journey has been very unpredictable. I think about how every year I try to set goals. I try to write down what I'm trying to call into my life. I'm trying to get better as a leader, as a founder, um, as a team member. And I think about all the opportunities that have come as a result of just saying yes to moving forward. So I think about having gotten a book deal during the height of a pandemic and releasing Upper Hand, the future of work for the rest of us that helped to culminate my experiences thus far and give people insight and information on how they can shape their own tech futures and journeys and have conversations with their families about how do we ensure our place in the future of work. I think about the opportunity moving forward of more books, of more opportunities to teach and to share and to help drive maybe policy and design of cities that are much more inclusive. And more important, it is creating the plug into the best next version of itself, of being that single source of truth for business intelligence, helping to unlock and provide resources and capital for data scientists and researchers and, and ecosystems that are really trying to unlock for communities that have traditionally been underserved, the ability to build from the ground up with the resources they need to move forward. I would love to say that I have like a five-year plan, but I do not. And I'd love for you all to know that it is also okay for you to not have a five-year plan or a very rigid framework because literally anything can happen. Literally, 2020, the world completely changed. I had no idea that I would be doing about 95% of my work from behind a computer and not being able to attend tech conferences because that was the formula that got me to a certain point. And now that world has completely changed and shifted. And on this journey, I want you to know that you're going to have to adapt. You're going to have to take the hits. You're going to have to stand up and show up even when you feel completely uncertain. But more important, more important is that you can have an overarching vision of how you want your life to feel. And if you can shape a business, if you can shape a community around that, more important is shaping a vision around how you want your life to feel. I love to travel. I spent three months on the beach in a stranger's house because I found them on Craigslist and it sounded like a good idea. I lived in the jungles of Costa Rica for a summer because I just wanted to not be in, in, in the same environment. And I thought, as long as I have Wi-Fi, I can be wherever, whenever I need to be. And I had to create my own formula and my own vision for how I wanted my life to feel and then build my business and my dreams around that. Discipline is still required, of course. Understanding who you are and what you want is still required. But the great thing and the biggest lessons I have learned, and I hope that you take this away with you, is that you get to decide what your journey looks like. And there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I'm grateful that the experiences that I've had the rejections, 
the just shooting my shot, all of those things just let me know that half the time is just about making the ask. And if I could convince people to join me on a journey, then I could also convince myself to determine the journey that I just want to have. So whether you're trying to map out a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, I think the core of this journey is really about what works for you, what still stretches you, but what works for you ultimately because it doesn't have to look like everyone else's journey. And I know we get so caught up in following people's lives on social media. We read all the five tips for waking up at 5 a.m. and meditating and drinking juice that tastes like grass and all of these kinds of like random things that are supposed to make you successful. And then we start to herald those who had unconventional pathways and how they were able to be successful. So let that be your leading story. And document your journey along the way so that you can continue to see exactly how far you've come. And even if your path like mine was not linear by any stretch of the the imagination or if it didn't make sense to anybody at all, you have a clear understanding of who you are, the skills, the talents, the environment. Use all those tools to your advantage and shape your own journey. That's it for this episode. You know... I always feel like, what if my brain worked in a very linear way? Would things have been easier? Would they have been less all over the place? And I've had to give myself grace along the way. So if you ever feel like you're stuck or you feel like you haven't got it quite right, I want you to give yourself a little bit of grace and realize you can use all of this, all of this story, all of this experience, all of the zigzags, all of the failures, the setbacks, the twists, the turns, the pandemics, the endemics, (laughs) all of that is just gonna make an incredible life story. So give yourself grace. All right, y'all, I'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of I Think I'm Doing This Right. I hope this was your one hour to breathe, connect, relate, and realize you are not alone on one of the greatest self-development journeys there is to embark on, entrepreneurship. Make sure to share this with your other friends who are just trying to figure it out so more of us can have a safe space to learn as we grow. Until next week, remember, this journey is all about grit, grace, and gratitude.